The European Union is both a political and an economic union of currently 27 member states and around 500 million people. Its features include an internal single market, which means there are no tariffs or quotas on any country trading with another EU country, and free movement of people, goods and capital. The European Union is a supranational organisation, which has the ability to enact binding legislation on a range of issues from trade, agriculture, fisheries and regional development. In addition, the European Union has its own currency, the Euro, of which 19 member states are currently a party to. But why is the European Union such a great invention? After all, there is rising discontent with it from many parties on both the left and the right. Does the European Union really deserve a spot on this list? Well, the reason lies in the bloody and deadly history of the European continent. Ever since Europa of Crete was abducted by Zeus, Europe has been in a constant state of warfare. Even after the massacres of the First World War, when people said, never again, war went and happened again. But since the invention of the European project, there has been no wars between the great powers, and the only wars on the European continent have been outside the club, on the periphery of the continent. This is not really a pro-EU podcast, or even an anti-EU podcast. There are good things and bad things about the European Union, and we'll get onto them. But it has succeeded in its aim of keeping peace in Western Europe. For some, its modern turn towards European federalism and a European superstate has gone too far. For some, this could never go too far, and some dream of the United States of Europe. The idea of European integration and creating a European superstate has preoccupied the minds of many great men since the fall of the Roman Empire in 476. There have been attempts to reform the Roman Empire in various ways. The Frankish Empire of 481 to 843, the Holy Roman Empire of 962 to 1806, the Napoleonic Empire, the Roman Catholic Church, even the Russian Empire, who viewed Moscow as the Third Rome, saw itself as a successor to Rome. But ideas of European integration only crystallised with the birth of the Enlightenment and the concurrent creation of the United States of America, as people began to dream of the United States of Europe. Perhaps the first stage of European integration came from Napoleon Bonaparte's marauding through most of Europe. He created his continental system of trade blockades 
against the British, which united much of Europe, even if this continental system was hated and ignored by most non-French subjects and clients of the First French Empire. Indeed, Napoleon would later claim that his goal in conquering much of Europe was to create a United States of Europe. Felix Markham notes how, during a conversation on St. Helena, Napoleon remarked, quote, Europe thus divided into nationalities, freely formed and free internally, peace between states would become easier. The United States of Europe would become a possibility. Close quotes. Though Napoleon did say this while in exile on St. Helena, and Napoleon was known to tell the odd self-aggrandizing lie, or two, or three, or four. The idea of the United States of Europe followed throughout much of the 19th century, with journalists and scholars, and people such as Victor Hugo arguing for it. Hugo said in 1849 that, quote, a day will come when we shall see the United States of America and the United States of Europe face to face, reaching out for each other across the seas, close quotes. Through the century, there were other successful integration and unification movements, with both Germany and Italy becoming unified in the middle of the century. Yet ideas of general European integration remained a pipe dream. By the time of the First World War, ideas of some sort of European Union had been banded about for over 100 years, with Theodore de Corby-Zawinski perhaps coming the closest to predicting what would actually happen. By focusing not on a Europe unified through nationalism, sovereignty and military power, but a Europe unified on economics, statistics, monetary policy and parliamentary reform. His blueprint was for a united Europe with a customs union, a central statistical office, a central bank and a single currency. German war aims for the First World War are still fiercely debated, perhaps so much so as their actual war aims were so muddied that nobody really knew. And unlike Hitler's elaborate and concrete plans for the continent, the German empires aren't as easy to work out. Historian Niall Ferguson says that had Germany won the war, Germany might have tried to create something akin to the European Union in 1914. Now, I don't really believe this. It seems much more likely that have annexed some land, turned some countries into client states, and subjected much of the rest of Europe, as Britain and Germany spent the next however many years in a long state of Cold War, as Britain funded guerrilla movements and rebels across the rest of Europe, as they tried to entice the US into the war. Of course we know what happens. Terrible bloodshed. And with the devastation of the First World War, 
there were little to no calls for increased integration during the Versailles Treaty negotiations. The idea of European integration might have been superseded by the formation of the League of Nations. Or perhaps there was just so much bad blood between the Germans and the French that the idea seemed ludicrous. But it was during and after the Second World War when plans for European integration would really take shape. There were several attempts from both the Allies and Axis powers to foster European integration. The Nazi plan is devised by von Ribbentrop and Cecil von Rinkefink would have bound Europe together in a single currency, a central bank in Berlin, a labour policy and an economic and trading agreement, with all nation-states inferior to Germany. Though the idea was vetoed by Hitler, who preferred simply a greater Germany. During the initial German invasion of France, there was a Franco-British speculative plan to unify Britain and France, partly as the French were worried Britain might duck out of their commitment to the country to defend them against Nazism. On June the 14th, 1940, German troops entered Paris. During the next 48 hours, British and French civil servants drafted a proposal for a quote-unquote declaration on Franco-British Union. This was not an alliance or a plan for integration similar to the European Union. The goal was to create one country. The document stated, quote, At this most fateful moment in the history of the modern world, the governments of the United Kingdom and the French Republic make this declaration of indissoluble union and unyielding resolution in their common defence of justice and freedom against subjection to a system which reduces mankind to a life of robots and slaves. There would be a joint control of defence, foreign policy, finance and economic policy. The two parliaments would be united, presumably with the French representatives sitting in the House of Commons in London. Churchill's private secretary said, quote, We had before us the bridge to a new world, the first elements of European or even world federation. Close quotes. On June the 16th, Churchill presented the idea to the all-party British cabinet. He was swept along by a wave of enthusiasm. Quote, I was somewhat surprised, wrote Churchill, to see the staid, solid, experienced politicians of all parties engage themselves so passionately in an immense design whose implications and consequences were not in any way thought out. Close quotes. Churchill put his doubts aside and told the cabinet, quote, In this crisis, we must not let ourselves be accused of a lack of imagination. Close quotes. Charles de Gaulle, who had arrived that morning in London, 
did have qualms about ending the country of France as he knew it. But de Gaulle embraced the plan as a grand move to change the course of history. Quote, the gesture must be immediate. Close quotes. In London, Churchill boarded a train along with the leaders of the major parties, ready for a rendezvous with a signature that could change the course of history. The train would travel to the coast and then they would sail by ship to meet the French government and sign the Act of Union. The train, however, never left the station. The scheme collapsed. The French government had been consumed by defeatism, as well as anger at the British for the perceived abandonment at Dunkirk, despite over 100,000 French troops having been rescued. The proposal of union was made to the French Council of Ministers, but it was rejected as a British plot to seize French colonies. After hearing news of the French decision, Churchill left the train with a heavy heart. He drove to Downing Street and got back to work. Within days, Patan took over the French government and pursued an armistice with Germany. Britain was alone. Had the proposal been made a week earlier, it would have most likely gone through. Such is history. Dominic Tierney states, quote, In 2016, as the British voted for Brexit, it was the spirit of Dunkirk that prevailed, not the torch of Franco-British Union. The champions of Brexit claimed to be defending Churchill's legacy, even though Churchill had backed the Union with France. One Conservative Party minister wrote, quote, The spirit of Dunkirk will see us thrive outside the EU. Close quotes. The crisis of 1940 opened up the possibility for a bold plan to unite Europe against tyranny. But the evacuation at Dunkirk was soon recalled in Britain as a very literal attempt to escape the continent. Close quotes. During the second part of the war, once victory looked more likely, the Allied powers tried to work out how Europe 2.0 was going to look. After the horrors of two world wars in a generation, there was another concerted effort to find a way to stop war happening again. In 1943, Jean Monnet, a member of the Free French Government in exile in Algiers, and regarded by many as the future architect of the European Union, is recorded as saying, quote, There will be no peace in Europe if the states are reconstituted on the basis of national sovereignty. The countries of Europe are too small to guarantee their peoples the necessary prosperity and social development. The European states must constitute themselves into a federation. Close quotes. So this gets us to the start of the European project, which can be dated at the end of the Second World War, beginning with the European coal and steel community. Born out of a French desire to weaken the Germans, 
an Anglo-American desire to keep the Germans strong enough to ward off communism, both at the borders and the ballot box, and for a post-war ally to trade with, and a German desire to show contrition for acts during the war, the European coal and steel community was born. Initially, the French had far grander ideas of what to do with the Germans, though that seems to be par for the cause with the French. French plans normally go something like this. Step 1. Get overrun by Germans. Step 2. Get allied to fight and win war for you. Step 3. Demand punitive reparations so Germans can never beat you in a war again. Step 4. Enrage Germans with your heavy-handedness, ensuring they will rebuild their economy and heavy industry so they can fight and win another war with you. Step 5. Repeat. The French plan was to dismantle German heavy industry by placing the coal-rich raw area and Rhineland under French control, and joining the coal-rich Saarland with the iron-rich province of Lorraine, which had been given back to the French in 1944 after the Germans had taken it from the French after the fall of France, after France had taken it back following the Peace of Versailles, after the Germans had taken it following the Franco-Prussian War. This plan would have decimated Germany, its economy, and surely what little was left of its national pride. Even more galling was the boost it would have given the French economy and French industry. Imagine, we could be sat here right now, marvelling over how amazing French engineering was, over how amazing French engineering was, rather than German engineering. The idea to dismantle the German economy left former US President Herbert Hoover to state, quote, There is the illusion that the new Germany left after the annexations can be reduced to a pastoral state. It cannot be done unless we exterminate or move 25 million peoples out of it. Close quotes. Obviously, even the French aren't vindictive enough to want to kill 25 million Germans. So there would have to be an alternative way to secure peace, rather than removing German industrial power. That solution was dreamt up by French Foreign Minister Robert Schuman, who proposed that, quote, Franco-German production of coal and steel as a whole be placed under a high common authority, within the framework of an organisation open to the participation of other countries of Europe. Close quotes. Placing coal and steel into this type of arrangement was intended to help economic growth and, depending on how cynical you are, either to symbolise peace between two powers who had fought wars for hundreds of years by pooling together the two materials most needed for war, or to allow the French to keep an eye on the Germans. On the 18th of April 1951, the European Declaration was signed by France, Italy, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg and West Germany, which formed the European Coal and Steel Community. 
The results of the coal and steel community were mixed. There was a tenfold increase in steel trade between the members. However, coal production declined. But welfare and mine safety did increase. One of the other aims of the community was to reduce the power of cartels and large corporations, as large German steel and coal corporations were seen as one of the main backers of the Nazi party, as industrialists knew that the Nazis seizing control would lead to a large increase in demand for coal and steel. Despite this, the larger markets for goods did in fact lead corporations developing and led to price fixing in the coal and steel community, though I guess that's still better than the Nazi party taking over. Furthermore, the move away from coal and towards oil after the Second World War also dented the power of the community. Though, as the main aim of the community was to stop war and foster togetherness between two formerly bitter rivals, the community managed to do just that. The coal and steel community was enough of a success to foster the creation of the European Economic Community. With the aim of creating a more federal Europe, now firmly ensconced in the minds of Eurocrats, there was the aim of creating two further communities, a European Defence Community and a European Political Community. The European Defence Community idea was rejected by the French Parliament, leading to European Coal and Steel Community President Jean Monnet resigning from the high authority in protest to begin work on alternative communities, which would be based on economic rather than political integration. As a result of the Messina Conference in 1955, Paul Henry Spack was told to prepare a paper on the idea of a customs union. The SPAC proposal was the first step of what would be the Treaty of Rome. In 1956, SPAC led the Intergovernmental Conference on the Common Market and Euratom, that's the European Atomic Energy Community, at the Val Duchesse Conference Centre. The conference led to the signature on the 25th of March 1957 of the Treaty of Rome, which established a European economic community between the six members that had comprised the coal and steel community. The idea was that the EEC was to create a customs union, with the first agreement in 1962 on the establishment of a common price for agricultural products. The rest of the 1960s was a slightly rough patch for the idea of European integration, mostly due to noted arsehole Charles de Gaulle, the French president. He was a very obstinate man and opposed much supranationalism, the idea that something was beyond national power, and it led to the French empty chairing European institutions until a compromise was reached. The result was the Luxembourg Compromise, where about a country can veto a policy of vital national interest. De Gaulle also scuppered the application of the UK 
thinking British entry into the EEC was a proxy for US influence, while at the same time rejecting applications from Denmark, Ireland and Norway. Once de Gaulle left office, the four countries resubmitted their applications in 1967 and Denmark, Ireland and the UK joined in 1973 as the Norwegians rejected membership in a referendum. The Treaty of Rome had also stated that a European Parliament needed to be elected rather than appointed as it was then. This process had been frustrated by de Gaulle blocking any developments of the Parliament. Yet elections were held in 1979, and galvanising by having direct elections and new power, the Parliament became more active than before. The period also coincided with the expansion of the club, with Greece, Spain and Portugal joining, following a restoration of their democracy. And with the expansion of the club, and more expansion looking likely, a new treaty was needed, the Maastricht Treaty. The Maastricht Treaty was the treaty that created the European Union, the passing of which was not easy. The Danes originally rejected the treaty. The French passed it on only 50.8%, and the British almost had their government collapsed by the so-called Maastricht Rebels. The Maastricht Treaty also created the Euro. Introduced in 2002 for 12 member states, the Euro was the continuation of the deepening of integration between the member states. With the addition of non-core Western nations like the Central and Eastern European countries, the EU faces far more challenges than it has ever done before, from debt-laden Greeks to the rise of authoritarianism. Yet, the core aim of the European Union has been achieved. We do have peace in Europe. The European Union has succeeded so far, where successive European institutions have failed. The Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire, the German Confederation, the Concert of Europe, all failed to bring peace to Europe. The European Union thus far has succeeded quite dramatically with no war and since the end of the Second World War period when Europe's economy completely imploded it managed to soothe nationalist tension and foster peace and prosperity. The European Union managed to integrate Germany back into Europe peacefully. Germany still had a lot of heavy industry intact, and this could have led to another round of Germany building up its economy and industrial output and launching another war. As the workhouse of Europe, with the largest population and centrality of its geography, Germany needed to be rebuilt and Germany needed feeding. And nobody wanted to be Germany's nanny. Thus, the European community was born. As the Schumann Declaration put it, the European coal and steel community's aim was, quote, make war not only unthinkable, but materially impossible, close quotes. This has been achieved, but the EU does have some other achievements. 
the democratization of former fascist states, such as Greece, Spain and Portugal, was helped by the EEC. All three emerged from dictatorship and were seeking to consolidate their newly restored democracies. Having long been marginalised in Europe, both economically and politically, Spain and Portugal also suffered from outdated industrial and agricultural sectors compared with the member states of the EEC. Membership of the EEC appeared to be the ideal solution to the problems facing these countries in transition. As with the rise of most dictatorships and the fall of democracies, it's almost always due to the economic situation. If these newly democratised Mediterranean states could bounce back economically with help from the EEC, it could stabilise fragile democracies. The EEC, as it still was just about, was one of the key actors in the role of German unification. With Britain still worried about German hegemon, the pledge by the Germans that the newly unified Germany would remain in the EEC and NATO reassured the British somewhat against the new power that would form in Europe following reunification. In addition, the added trade that came about from masses of aid given to Eastern Europe helped to revive the crippled economy and to start rebuilding some of the infrastructure destroyed and neglected by communism. Perhaps the most recent impact of the European Union has been the integration of Eastern European countries en masse. As with Spain, Greece and Portugal, the need to solidify democratic regimes has been one of the key aims for the EU and for many former Soviet countries to fall under the umbrella of European protection was a far better one than coming under Russian protection, as we've seen recently in non-EU countries like Georgia and Ukraine. The 2004 enlargement, the largest enlargement of the EU, meant a wave of migration, helping both recipient countries in terms of cheap labour and exporting countries in terms of remittances back home. Though of course this has created some tension in terms of depressing wages in recipient countries, and the culture shock of such a rapid increase in migration to mostly poorer areas of the West. Eastern Europe has developed dramatically in numerous ways from EU enlargement, such as political stability with all members of the EU needing to be democratic regimes. They've also benefited from increased trade in the common market and a more mobile workforce. It's meant Eastern European countries now has the fastest economic growth in Europe. EU membership has also brought about major opportunities for Central and Eastern European countries, as it has made them more attractive for outsourcing and offshoring. Despite the legacy of centrally planned economies, the countries that joined the EU in 2004 and 2007 now rank relatively highly in terms of economic freedom as their trade with original member states thrives.
money from the EU budget is now flowing to the East's poorest areas, and it allows them to restructure, modernise, and make them competitive enough to meet Western European standards. They are now part of a single market that comprises 27 members and over 500 million people, accounting for 18% of world trade and contributing more than a quarter of the world's GDP. The EU represents the largest internal market in the world. The extension of the single market leads to productivity and competitiveness rises in the newest members, which is translated into positive effects for all countries in Central and Eastern European member states. Now, we all know, or we should all know, the European Union is not perfect, and its many imperfections has caused the resurgence of nationalism, populism, Euroscepticism, and in some places, extremism. While corruption is still a great cause of dissatisfaction with current political elites in large parts of Europe. Yet, resurgences of nationalism and populism in Eastern Europe, such as the League of Polish Families or the Hungarian Justice and Life Party, the Greater Romanian Party or the Slovenian National Party, or the Slovak National Party, are not exclusive to Central and Eastern European countries. The EU seems to be antagonising many, many people in both the West and the East. The reasons for this are quite simple. Bureaucracy, a democratic deficit, technocracy and its technocratic nature of decision-making makes it seem like bureaucrats in ivory towers in Brussels make decisions that the people of Europe don't want anymore. Migrant crises seems to be a never-ending problem in Europe. But perhaps the biggest problem many have is the supranational nature of the institution, which left everybody from Britain in the 1950s, Charles de Gaulle in the 60s, and the rise of the Eurosceptic movement in the 90s to the modern day, increasingly worried about what it will do to national identity. This, more than anything, was the reason Britain left. Whether you agree with Britain leaving or not is another matter, but it will happen. But for all the issues the EU has to face and will face, the EU has been far more successful than almost any other institution at keeping peace in Europe. And that is why it is the 98th greatest invention of all time.